Good morning, family. My name is Troy. I'm one of the servants here. And this morning we are continuing on in our series, Fighting Wild Beasts, as we're taking a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the ongoing impact and relevance of the resurrection of Jesus. And as we open this morning, I want to give you an update, a story that I think will launch us well into our text this morning. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Sally from Chad Africa, if you've heard the name Sally. Okay, so many of you have. If you haven't, that, I didn't want you to feel left out, but I just want you to know over the years, if you've been here for a while, you'll hear her name pop up again, now and again. She is uh, probably one of the first, if not the first, follower of Jesus in the context that she lives in, which is a city in Chad, Africa, where our dear friends and partners, Dr. Eric and Molly Croner, serve. And um, when she came to faith in Jesus Christ, in the context that she came to it in, uh, she became very vulnerable to persecution for her faith. And we have followed her over this journey together with Eric and Molly, and uh, we've heard the stories, story upon story, of her steadfast faithfulness in the midst of persecution, and her testimony and her witness that has drawn others nearer to Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. Now, you haven't heard maybe uh, for her, from her for a little while, so I want to give you an update because we have one from just this past week. In mid-March, we were asked to pray for Sally because her brother was going to be returning home to the city that she lives in from overseas. And uh, he reached out to the, her, his uncle where they live, and he, he asked the question about Sally and her faith. And he said, I don't want to come there and have any infidels in the house when I get there. And so upon receiving that phone call, Sally's uncle, where she lives, took her children and locked them up for 30 hours without food or water. Okay, this is something that's happened a number of times in the past. And to, to convince Sally to leave her faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Her and her children have been in through this and endured a number of threats in their lives. They continue to remain steadfast and faithful. Also happening around a conversation in the family in the meanwhile was this conversation that perhaps the women of the family would be better served by moving from the city that they live in to the capital of Njemena. Maybe be more opportunity for them there. There was one condition in the consideration, though, that they must, if any of them have followed Jesus, they must leave Jesus behind for them to do that. Potentially putting Sally in a place where she would be left alone. Just think about the weight of those things. So, uh, in the past few weeks, her brother has come from overseas to celebrate Ramadan uh, with the family there. And we learned that he had not kicked her out of the house, he had not harmed her, and then just this past week, um, we got an email update. And what Sally did was she took a step of faith. And she asked her brother if she would allow him to let her make him a meal to break the fast. When, we, when, when the Muslims celebrate Ramadan, they, they break the fast every day by having a large meal. So she wanted to make the meal for him, but she asked if she could also share her story of faith with him. He agreed. After sharing her story, her brother was astounded at all she's been through and every miracle God has done for her and through her. He said that he will not try to stop her from following Jesus and even asked to read the scriptures with her. They started reading the Gospel of Matthew together Wednesday night. Can we praise God for that? The radical impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its relevance in our lives. 
here in this room all over the globe to this day. We, we do fight. We have a fight that we're in, but we do not fight with the weapons of the world. We fight with a testimony of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And Sally's testimony is not an easy one, but she has stood firm in her faith. She's fought humbly with the truth of the power of the gospel because Jesus is good news. And today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Christ's story changes our story. Christ's story changes our story. That's what we're going to see. And so we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Grab a Bible with either under the chairs in front of you. would love for you to grab one of those and open it. Um, hopefully it's not the only time you open one of these a week, but we'd love for you to at least open it this time during the week. And we're going to be on page 815, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now we talked about it when Ryan kicked off this series last week. What's going on in this? This is a letter that the Apostle Paul, a guy who hated and killed Christians, met the resurrected Jesus Christ. His life was completely flipped upside down. He went to tell everybody about the power of who Jesus is. And one of the places that he went was this, the ancient city of Corinth. And he shared about the gospel of Jesus there. Some people followed Jesus and they established what was called the ecclesia or the church, the gathered ones, of followers of Jesus. And then Paul left because he was an apostle. He was called to go preach the gospel elsewhere, and so he did. But he heard about what was going on in Corinth, and he wrote letters back to sort of mentor and disciple them from afar. He couldn't tweet it at that time, so he had to send letters. And so we have a letter here. One of the things that he uh, had to reiterate and come back to was the significance of the resurrection. And in chapter 15, there's a ton of ink he spills here on the resurrection. So we're going through it uh, for five weeks. So we open to chapter 15, verse 20 this morning. Um, let me pray before we read this. Father God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear your word from you directly by your spirit. More than anything that I say, Lord, would these words that we are about to read change us. I pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Why don't you stand with me as we read the word of God. I'm going to read, I'm going to pick up in uh, 19 and then jump to 20 here because I'm going to pick up where we left off. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. That's where Ryan left us off last week. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself who has put everything under Christ. And when he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of God. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? All right, before we dive into this together, I want to give you a, just a couple minutes just to look at this scripture again. And I want you to just say, hey, what sticks out to you in these verses as you read them? Maybe it's a phrase, maybe it's an idea, or maybe it's a question that you have. So turn to someone. Uh, if you see someone sitting alone, bring them into the conversation. We're supposed to be family here. So do that for just a couple minutes, and then we'll come and unpack this uh, together. All right. Anything that sticks out that you want to share? Just pops off the page for you. What sticks out? Say that again. Some over here. No? 
Everything is going to be, everything's under God. Yeah. Under his feet. Yeah. What else sticks out? The man. What, why does it stick out? He was a man just as we are. Yeah. What else? Someone says over here. Verse 24. Yep. Yeah. Is that, is that a question? The, Sue, this isn't a time for questions. Like, just comment, Sue. So what you do is with the risk you take, right? No, thank you. The question, so isn't it Jesus' kingdom too, she asked. Well, is it God's kingdom? And it's like, what's going on in the, at the end part here? Well, then he who has been given the kingdom will hand it back to the Father. What are they doing? They're playing like hot potato with the kingdom, right? Okay, we'll come back to that. Make a note. All right. So let's, let's start with uh, verse 20, 20, okay? We'll start there. Um, to start with, Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. A couple comments about those two things. Those who have fallen asleep means those who have died, right? You know? And then at the first fruits is this idea that Jesus, his resurrection, is sort of like a down payment or earnest money, meaning that because Jesus rose from the dead, there's going to be more coming. If you, if you get a first fruit from your garden, it means that there's more coming. Like, hey, here's the first fruits of it. There's more coming which means that Jesus rose from the dead. He points to the fact that there will also be a resurrection for those who are in Christ because Christ's story changes our story, okay? And Paul then makes this simple deduction. We see it in this next slide uh, that I have a little graph for you. So it goes like this. So Adam brought death, and so all who are in Adam die. Christ brought life through his resurrection, so all who are in Christ live. It's really, it's not that complicated, Basically what he's saying is if anyone is in Adam, they die. And that's all of us. What it means by in Adam is that Adam, as the first man who, there was sin. Sin was entered into the world through Adam. And so all who are in Adam, that's every human, dies. Does anyone want to debate that one? Okay, so that's a reality. We know that's true. All in Adam died. But then he says all who are in Christ, all, anybody who is in Christ who believes in his life, death, and resurrection, receive life. It's a sharp contrast of what happens here between Adam and what we, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam, the better Adam. Uh, for by a man came death, for as in Adam all die. Now something I, I don't want us to miss here because we can glaze over it. I don't want to. It's really practical, so I want to bring it out here is I want to ask you, where does Paul, where does Paul point the finger there? Where's, who, who gets the blame for what this stuff is going on? Help me out. Adam. Yeah. And more, I mean, more broadly, man. Okay? Now, um, I think sometimes Paul gets a bad rap for sometimes how people view, how he, believe, how he, how he thinks about women in the context a couple thousand years ago. But he doesn't say anything about Eve right here. I just want you to know this. He, he throws Adam completely under the bus. Okay? No Eve mentioned, just completely Adam under the bus. So I want to just very gently and carefully do some pastoral things here for the men in the room. Okay? I want to carefully and gently do a little exhortation here if you're a man. Specifically, if you're a father and a husband, it doesn't matter if you're not. I think in the world today, we, we get a glimpse of what it looks like to be a man. And to be a man means that you would provide financially for those that you love. I believe that that is honorable, okay? I believe that the world tells us that to be a man also 
means that you provide physically the protection of those that you love. Another thing I think that's honorable. But men, why do we think that our responsibilities to care for those that we love ends with financial and physical? And doesn't include the spiritual. Okay, and some of you guys are like, Troy, I'm here. What are you talking about? I'm here. Great, that's a good start. But men, you have significant influence in the lives of those that you love. Okay? Let me ask this question. Men, are you using your influence to serve those that you love by helping grow them spiritually? To care for their souls? Are you initiating the protection and provision of their souls? See, Adam stood by and... and, and His wife was deceived by the serpent. He stood by passively and watched it happen. Didn't stand in, stand up to protect. And as a result, they died. And as a result, we die. And that's not good news. But here's the good news. That story doesn't end there. It doesn't have to end there. Because Christ's story can change our story. We don't have to be passive like Adam when it comes to the spiritual and soul care of our loved ones. Since by one man came death, but by Christ can come life. So, man, I'm, I'm not trying to, 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 to beat you guys up about this. Um, some of you guys are like, I don't even know what that looks like. That's okay. I get it. There are men, older men, senior saints in this room that can help, help you. They can walk alongside you in that. And say, how do I do this? We just have to ask them. I want to inspire you to point your loved ones, I want to inspire you men to inspire your loved ones towards Christ. Let me ask this, what better protection and provision could you give to those that you love than pointing them to the one who gives eternal life? Just want to throw that out there, okay? Sorry if that's a side tangent, we just think a lot about Adam and, and how he gets thrown under the bus here. And guys, we get thrown under the bus, okay? But our story doesn't have to end there. Christ's story can change all that. And we point to him. Paul writes this, these things are going to happen in order. It will be made alive in order. First, Christ, in verse 23, has been raised. Secondly, those who belong to Jesus, when he returns at his coming, will be raised. And then the end will come. And Jesus will hand over the kingdom that he's been given by God the Father back to the Father. After Jesus has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power. Which, by the way, was no small thing to declare when this was written. Okay, I want you to think about this. Jesus says, he talks about the coming of Jesus. It's a Greek word, parousia. And this word coming is a word the Corinthian church would have known very clearly. It's a word that would have been associated with when the emperors came and visited, which happened in, in AD 66. Emperor Nero came to Corinth, his parousia. When John the Baptist says, make straight paths for the Lord, it's a comment that would have been very common in that time because anytime a king is coming, you literally do a huge amount of work to make sure the road is completely flat and ready to go for the king to come in. Think about what we do for the Olympics, right? Like you, you build an entire city for that event. So I want you to think of when the emperor was coming to visit, it was basically like Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and the opening ceremony of the Olympics all together. They made coins about it, like they minted coins. It was a huge deal. And Paul here is talking about Jesus' coming, which is a little, uh, let me just say it's risky. When Jesus, or when, when Paul writes this, 
This is, as risk, this, is, this is riskier than Sally saying, hey, brother, can I make you dinner and tell you my story? Dr. Kenneth Bailey puts it this way. In 44 B.C., when the rebuilding of Corinth began, each of the retired soldiers settled there, received a home and a piece of land from the Roman state. It's natural to assume that they and then their descendants, which is where we'd be talking because we're after this, were solid supporters of their benefactor, the Roman Empire. When Paul wrote that we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, he was not only confessing his faith, he's making a political statement. If Jesus is Lord, then Caesar's not. In like manner here in verse 24, even though Paul was writing about the climactic end of the age, he was at the same time de-absolutizing the rulers, authorities, and powers around him. It was dangerous to even think, let alone proclaim such things anywhere in the Roman Empire, but to write this kind of subversive literature and send it to the largest Roman city outside of Rome, that's oh, risky. It's a little risky. It's extremely risky. This is what we read. But you know what? It didn't matter to Paul because Christ's story had changed Paul's story. The late professor Jaroslav Pelikan wrote this. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. I want you to think about that for a second. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, Nothing else matters. Verse 25, Jesus goes on to say that, or Paul writes that Jesus must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. Jesus already reigns right now, okay? He reigns, but his reign is not fully complete until every last enemy is vanquished, including death itself. Again, Bailey puts it well uh, when he writes this. Death was introduced by Adam, conquered through the resurrection of Christ, and will be destroyed finally in the ultimate victory of Christ at the end of history. We talked about Emperor Nero coming to Corinth. There's another emperor that I think helps us illustrate these verses. Haile Selassie. I have a picture of him here. Haile Selassie was the emperor of Ethiopia, 1930 to 1974, not that long ago, and reigned as emperor for a long time, okay? He was responsible for bringing the country of Ethiopia into the League of Nations, the United Nations, and into what is now called the African Union. He sought to modernize Ethiopia's government and society uh, by transforming things economically, educationally, uh, socially, all while maintaining a centralized government as emperor. It's fairly impressive when you think about it, okay? And so he ruled until 1974 when a famine in Ethiopia caused a huge uprising within the country and his own military did a, had a mutiny against him. And he was killed and his body disappeared. One of those who led the mutiny was this man, this next slide, Mengistu Haile Miriam. Okay, one of the commanders of, his, of, his, of, uh, of Selassie's army. And Miriam made himself dictator, because that's what you do. Okay, you make yourself dictator. And he uh, remained in power until 1991, when he actually himself got ousted and had to go to Zimbabwe, which is where he still lives to this day. The government that took over from this guy, they wanted to find Heidi Selassie's body. And so they began to do a little bit of an inquiry around the palace. And they apparently asked some of the palace servants, do they know anything about it? 
And the servant said, dig up the tiled floor under the desk in Mengistu's office. On Monday, February 17th, 1992, the authorities did that. And they found the body of Emperor Haile Selassie. Mengistu had secretly buried the emperor under the floor of his desk so that every day as he sat at his desk, his enemy was literally under his feet. You're like, what? That's messed up. That's messed up right there. Right? That's what you're thinking. But I get it. I mean, if you want to if, if show who's, who, who's, the, who's the winner, that's one way to do it. I mean, if you really want to be like, hey, who's, who's, in, oh, who's, who's in charge here? Oh, that's right, me. Paul, in this text, makes it clear who the victor is. It's Jesus. That he must reign until all enemies are under his feet, with death itself being that final enemy. Doesn't every one of us want to be done with death? Can I get an amen? Like, don't we want to be done with death? I mean, he references here, he's like, all things will be put under your feet like a footstool. He references Psalm 8, verse 6, and then he references Psalm 110 as well, which is his next slide. The Lord, David writes, the Lord God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, the struggle that I think we all wrestle with in this room is this idea of, okay, if Jesus is reigning, then how come we still die? If Jesus is reigning, Troy, help me understand why we still have to navigate the diagnoses and the trauma and the divorce and the war and the brokenness and the lies and the venom. Why? I have a friend of mine who says, Troy, I, I don't know. It doesn't look like God's winning. Does it, Troy? Do you really think like God's winning? And I, I get it. I get, I get where he says that sometimes. I did a couple funerals just in the last month, and one of them was for a young man who tragically died as a result of a, of a decision that he had made. And, and as I was consoling the family, I asked, is there anything else I can do? And one of the loved ones said, yeah, can you raise him from the dead? It's a tough question. And it was like beyond a week that I was like, hey, that's even further than Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So I'm like, I, I don't even want to, you know, I don't know how, no, no. So, but what I didn't say, but I wanted to say, should have said, didn't think about it until afterwards, I wanted to say, I, I, I can't raise him from the dead. But I, I want you to know someone who I believe with all my heart raises from the dead. I, I want you to meet him. He's changed my life and my story. He's changing people's stories all over the world. He can change yours. Family, I, I don't know why. I don't have all the answers as to why things are the way that they are in the world. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way, though, and I think he does a good job. If you have a God great enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same time a God great enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. That There is, in my humble opinion, at least one reason why God hasn't ceased all the evil and suffering in the world yet, and that's because he's allowing us to join him in its abolition. He's calling us into it to actively engage in the thwarting of darkness. 
Jesus never reigned passively from afar. He came so close, he was here. He still doesn't reign passively from afar. And we were not called, created, redeemed, saved, so that we would stand back passively from afar. Jesus remains actively engaged in vanquishing all these powers that are hostile to God, and he calls his bride, that's us, his church, to remain actively engaged in his work, joining him in it. Christ's story changes our story. And we're not there yet, but at the end of this chapter 15, we're going to read this verse when we get there. I want to give you a little heads up. Paul writes, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. We know how this ends. Death will be put under the subjection of the king. The son will hand the kingdom back over to the father who gave it to him in the first place. And then father, son, and spirit rule and reign and all in all. But in the meanwhile, this family, this is where we come in as a church. This is why we are to live on mission. Sin is not, we still experience it. Evil, death, we still experience the effects of it. But we are called to be a church who speaks hope and life and truth and love and light into this. You know, I exhorted the men a little earlier, hey guys, we can't be passive, but family, this is true for any of us who would say, I'm in Christ. We cannot be passive. You have been given resurrection life in Jesus Christ, so we cannot be passive with the life that we've been given, disengaged, just waiting for heaven. Paul writes, those who are in Christ will be made alive at his second coming. What about those who aren't in Christ? What about those who aren't in Christ? What happens to them? Well, Paul doesn't say anything about it right here. He's not addressing that. But Jesus says a lot about it. Jesus himself says a lot about it, and it's not pretty for those who are not in him. He uses an image of of a place called Gehenna, which is the village, it's the city dump, where there's fire that's not quenched and worm that just does not die. It's what we call hell. Jesus himself describes this as a place of eternal weeping and crying. Why? Because there's no more death. At one point, there'll be no more death. But this is where the rejection of God becomes eternal. And family, that, that should wreck us. That should wreck us. That there are people around the world who don't know about Jesus, have not heard his name. There are people that are in this county who have maybe heard about Jesus but have not found themselves to be in Christ because they have not experienced him. They do not know truly who he is and that his story can change their story. And this should, should weigh on us. It should change how we live today. Who we spend our time with. Professor and author W. Ross Hastings wrote a book just recently, just came out, on the relevance of the resurrection. I haven't read the whole thing, but in, in his, he writes this. He says, I'm convinced, this is a long one, I've got to work through it with you. I'm convinced that most evangelical Christians, that's sort of what we would maybe think of ourselves at here. We're, we're followers of Jesus, but this sort of is, is some of us. Anyway, most evangelical Christians, despite the fact they would die for the belief that Jesus arose literally in, the, in bodily form from the dead, and despite the fact that they believe notionally in the fact that the resurrection was God's guarantee, that's that earnest money, that deposit, that we're justified and forgiven for all of our sins, let me start it over. Most Christians or followers of Jesus know very little about resurrection living. That is guilt-free, joyful and passionately missional and other-oriented Christianity. 
This is why we're still here, because Christ's story changes our story. We have resurrection power that lives in us to make us more like Jesus in character so we can live like him in action so that others may understand him, come to know him, and know that he changes their story as well. Christ's story changes our story, our past, our present, and our future. That it would become guilt-free, joyful and passionately missional and others oriented amen like this is what we're called to as we close this morning i want to we're doing interviews each each week this morning i want to bring up three sisters in christ um do we have the handheld mic did martha leave that somewhere oh you got it okay sorry um so if you've been around for a little bit bit of a period of time last august you're aware there were some uh upheaval in Afghanistan, and Afghanistans were evacuated. And so we have been so blessed and privileged as a family of faith to be able to help along with Northbrook and Stillwater's Methodist Church in Jackson to help resettle um, those who have found themselves displaced. And so we've got um, five families, six alone men that these teams are all serving who are in this area. And so today I would, I would ask you to give a warm Kettlebrook welcome to our three team leaders, Kara. Uh, Christy and Lori. Good morning, ladies, sisters. <clears throat> so we're going to start with you, Frau Wanta. Some of you know Frau Wanta. She teaches German, also has taught Chinese in the past. Yeah, I speak as a German. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. You know, you know I don't. Um, Lori, uh, you. Here's my question for you, sorry. You lead a team that has uh, a family of five. You're doing it well, I'm aware of it, because I get WhatsApps every day with it from the team. Um, what compelled you to be involved in this, and what has the experience been like for you? So first of all, um, my identity as a woman kind of made me a little bit nervous, because I my expectation was that it would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, um, it was not what I expected. So that sort of fear, I thought it'd be awkward to work with the men, I wouldn't be myself, and that um, I wouldn't relate to the women. But in fact, um, that was not a problem. And I think one of the reasons why it wasn't a problem was because of my identity as a teacher. So um, being a teacher, I had this great gift that I could have this relationship with the families that came, um, the men and the women, and the surprise was I've been teaching my eyeballs off, actually, English, and extra classes, and so in addition to being, it being a gift, it's also been the greatest challenge because I'm teaching adults who, have, who are non-literate, trying to learn English. So I've never done that before. So you think it, I'm equipped, but I'm not. Mm. God is the one doing that. Mm. And of course then that helped me with my identity as a Christ follower because it just called me to serve them and just to serve and serve and serve the myriad needs that they have. And that service, of course, is sacrificial and it's all-consuming. Um, but also the greatest joy. That has been the joyful part. But I would say that one of the hardest parts and 
this is hard and I don't want to be misunderstood, but my identity as American has been one of the sources of pain mm -hmm. because as we walked through their culture shock and take on their perspective, you know, their status as refugees and our status as Americans are tied together in ways that we don't want to think about. Mm. And, and I have had, I've been frustrated and angry and feeling helpless, sometimes in the middle of the night on their behalf. Mm. Coming here and, you know, first their experience there um, as helping Americans is the reason they're here. And then coming here and our guy, you know, he gets here and his birth date is, there's a mistake on his birth date on three important documents. And when he looks at me and says, why? I have nothing to say. And I have to tell a story because then the wild beasts are alive in, in Afghanistan, the Taliban. And so before Easter, we learned that their families are being ruthlessly harassed by the Taliban now as we speak. And before Easter, the gal, her two brothers were arrested by the Taliban. And she shared that in the context of our English class. So that was, has been a place where they can share. And we pray together for her in the name of Jesus. And we went to the mosque and we prayed with them there. And they prayed there. And we shared it with the, the prayer team. And they prayed about them here. And then we found out that the guy's dad was also threatened with jail because they were looking for his guns there were no guns. <clears throat> and then we found out that, in fact, he was put in prison. And the other members of the community here in West Bend, they told me that it's hopeless. They're not coming home. But we prayed. And after Easter, I've been sent here to tell you, her brothers came home. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and the father was in prison only one night. And they all agree it's a miracle. And that story is being told not just here, not just in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan and Turkey, where the family members of all our community members are, are spread out. That's redemption. Yeah. Amen. Praise God. Praise, praise God. Yeah. Would you just praise him with me? Praise God. Yeah. Praise you, God. Yes. And so finally, the last thing is, you know, my identity as a family of God. All of the people who are out there who are in my team, so I can tell you this is my personal experience, but it's all in the context of this group that is gathered around. And we are not just surrogate family. We are not just helpers, teammates. We're the family of God. And this is the truth that has come clear. Mm. So praise God. Amen. And we will walk forward with, with, forward with them connected like this, not because refugee and American, but because we are the family of God. And it yeah. is such a joy. And that's why I'm, I'm so thankful and mainly feeling gratitude to God. Yeah. So. Amen. Amen. Christy's next. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Christy, you're already uh, tearing up, which I understand, because your heart is so, so for this and for these people. Uh, you were roped in um, and have dove in, do, dove in, you've di, div in, d, d, dived, she jumped in, <laughs> jumped in and is overseeing a team that's serving a family of eight. What has been um, giving you great joy? What has been hard for you? 
while serving any family of eight and their needs is overwhelming at times, but then you add in cultural and language differences and it's a lot overwhelming at times. Um, I've had to remind myself that if I'm overwhelmed in my American comfortable context, what, should, what must they be feeling? What must they be feeling? The reality is our team and all of our team members, we, we can't serve all of their needs and the longings they have. They long for Afghanistan, their family, their home. And we can't, we can't meet those needs, but we can love and serve them as best as possible and just let them know that we're here to walk alongside them and to care. Um, the, some of the things that have brought me great joy is when we first drove them home. I was with Zakia and the girls. We drove in the driveway and I could just visibly see Zakia say, not say, but visibly think, I'm going to be okay. My family's going to be okay. Mm. That was a great moment of joy. Mm. Um, another moment was when we were driving, I was driving Zakia, the mom, and her baby to the hospital, or not the hospital, to the doctor. And I didn't have comforting words. This was all a new experience for her, but I could take her hand and I could say, you know, I'm here with you. I care. That brought me joy. Um, it's been a joy to just watch their English grow. Mm. We have people faithfully serving inside the home and at CASA, uh, just watching them uh, excel at this. Little by little, little by little, it's beautiful to watch. Um, we have an amazing school district, teachers, EL teachers, man, they have welcomed and served this family. I'm so thankful for them and the ways that they um, have received them. Um, another celebration um, with just the English learning is that Zakia has never known how to write her name. And now when we go to the doctor, she writes her name proudly in English. I celebrate that with her. Mm. Um, so whether it's hugs from the kids, whether it's um, sitting in their living room, drinking tea, laughing together, connecting, even though there's not language, all of that just brings such an amazing sense of joy to walk alongside them. Uh, we're nearly four months into this, and I'm just so proud of this family. They're resilient. Um, they are doing really well. Razi is working. The kids are doing well in school. Zakia is home, at home, um, comfortable with the, the girls at home. Uh, so I'm just really proud of of what they have uh, been going through and 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 accepting that this hard new reality um, is what they face with grace. Um, so it's just been a great, great privilege. Um, but what I'll add to that is also what great brings me joy is that this brings me into God's heart in a way that um, I just, I'm so thankful for understanding God's heart. Um, I'm understanding how it's changing me. And that for me is where the greatest joy comes from hmm. because I get to see his heart and his purposes uh, played out. And so I'm thankful. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Christine. Kara, what does it look like to be a part of a team and have all the refugees been resettled? So um, I guess I would say this. 
um, I can probably speak for these guys and I can probably speak for the care team members that to be involved in this has been a profound privilege and honor. It, it, it has changed our lives. Our life stories have been changed by these people. Um, so I'll answer your second question, I'll go back to the first. Okay. Um, are they all settled? So the Afghans that were brought to the U.S. initially have all been moved out of the forts into communities. But there's tens of thousands more that we evacuated, we promised that we would do that, who are currently still in other countries, Albania, Romania, Germany, um, waiting to be brought to the states. And the government and the resettlement agencies are overwhelmed by this. And so they've reached out to the faith communities asking for help. So there are more Afghans to be resettled, and we would love if it is God's purpose to bring more to West Bend. We sort of know what we're doing now. The community has been fabulous, and our Afghan friends would love more Afghans. So what does it mean um, to be on a care team? I think there's three things. One, you have to be willing to be part of a team, to work together, to communicate together, to help these families take their next steps so that they can eventually become self-sufficient. The second thing, and it's a big thing, is you have to be willing to learn um, what it means, how to best help resettle Muslim refugees. It means we have to change some of the things we do um, so that they are more comfortable. So you have to be willing to do that. And the third thing is, um, as to the best of your ability to, to maintain the commitment that you said you were able to commit to. Maybe that's one hour a week. Maybe it's two. Maybe it's two hours every two weeks to help them drive. Whatever that is, it takes the whole team working together. So what we want to say is we would love to bring more Afghans, but we need more people <laughs> because all of us are up to our eyeballs, and it's wonderful. Um, but if this is something you think God may be speaking to you about, what should they do? Call they should reach out to you. Oh. Right? Reach out to me. Um, if you don't have my information, yes, yeah. reach out to me. <laughs> you get things done. You get things done, Cara. How Info at kettlebrook.org. There we go. That'll come. Yeah. We'll get it to where it needs to go. And I can say from all of our Afghans, because they've said it, thank you. They have said thank you to Kettlebrook so much um, for helping them and walking alongside them. Can we praise God for this team and what he's doing? Um, I, just want us to, I just want us to pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. We think about how you've called us to be a light to all nations, and, and then COVID shut down that option. We couldn't go anywhere, and yet you have started to bring people who don't know your son Jesus right here um, in our backyards. So, Father, I pray that if there's anyone in the room who is knowing more today that Christ's story changes their story, and they want to live um, passionately, missionally, and others-centered in their faith, that they might consider this as an option, to exercise their faith in this way. If there's other ways, Father, help us to step out in those. Whatever those, those works that you've prepared in advance for us to do, I pray that you would make it the case, that you would cause us to be a people who have been changed by the story of Jesus Christ, and that we would live on mission to see the fullness of the kingdom come as Christ, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit would be all in all. Until then, Lord, 
Help us to live this way for your sake and your glory. Thank you for these three who, who have stewarded so well those you've entrusted to them, both the Afghan families and the teams that you've entrusted to them. I pray you give them encouragement, strength, and ongoing motivation to the heart of God, Father, your heart, that you would continue to explode this out of, exude this out of their mouths, or their, their hearts, and their hands. And we pray this for your sake and your glory, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you.